welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast, a podcast for farmers and ranchers ready to shift for a stronger future. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful are not. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, you'll hear how producers of all sizes and practices are moving mountains for things they believe in, all in the name of an industry that keeps growing and innovating for a stronger food system and stronger farm families. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to discuss where producers are finding success, challenging the status quo, striving for better, and keeping our heritage alive, all while producing the food we depend on. Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. Today, I have Shane Meenan with me. Shane and I actually went to college together along with his wife, Emily. Uh, Shane's a Northeast Kansas native and spent six years establishing a career working alongside the commercial real cop crop production industry. And that showed you a lot of the good and bad of today's production agriculture system, which I think there's always good and bad in every industry. I'm excited to dive into kind of where we're at with that with you and what your thoughts are. Uh, This fueled a desire to think differently about today's farming and ranching styles and the dependency on government subsidies specifically and having to play by those rules. So Shane, tell us a little bit more about how you got here to this thought process, what that experience was like that led you to kind of questioning some of these things. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, Like I said before, I feel extremely underqualified to be on your podcast after listening to previous episodes. You've had some really intriguing people on here and I've enjoyed listening to them ever since you invited me to be on. I was like, listen to some of your podcasts to see what this is about. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it and shared it with a lot of friends. Um, actually the first one I shared with people is the backyard butchery one. That one's so cool. And a lot of people enjoyed that podcast as well. So what kind of got me here actually was a, uh, was a life insurance, um, policy physical after college, you know, college was pretty rough, a lot of fast food, a lot of alcohol, and my uh, life insurance physical did not go well. And it kind of made me have a reality check on my health. And so Emily and I kind of went down this, you know, journey of how can we, how can we be better, you know, uh, health and what we buy in food and making better food choices. And I said, what a better way than just growing our food ourselves. And let's, let's go down that route. Well, everybody knows chickens are the gateway to homesteading and vegetable gardens. So we started with, I think 30 Cornish cross chickens and we had them at my mom, dad's house in an old coop. And be honest with you, that first year with the 30 chickens, it it was the way my mom and dad had always done it growing up. And there's just 30 chickens in a small space for six or seven weeks and all their poop and feathers and everything was there. By the time we killed them, they're all laying down and all that. And they're, they're, they're disgusting. And that got us thinking like, there's, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So started down the YouTube rabbit hole of region ag and that got me on Gabe Brown and Joel Salton. And so we came up with a, a chicken tractor. We settled on the John Siskoich chicken tractor and we bought some Freedom Rangers after realizing that broilers were not the way to go. Um, you know, you get close to the six, seven week on a broiler mark and they start dying of heart attacks because they just get so big so fast and there's water sacks around in their heart. And it's like, that was another thought. It's like, 
are we should we be eating this? I mean, this is disgusting. If you if like the human version of this would be a large person. I don't think this is healthy. And yet this is what we're eating in our body or feeding our bodies with. And that's what you buy at the store. And so it was like, there's gotta be a much better way to do this. So we started out with the Freedom Rangers and now, you know, we have a chicken tractor and we move them every day to fresh grass. And that's just fueled my um, region ag as we now have um, cattle and pigs and layers. Um, so yeah, that's a little brief introduction. Yeah, you bet. I think um, that it's always interesting when you jump into that first experience of producing your own food, how much you learn that very first thing that you do. We did meat birds um, was one of our first things that we did too. And they just get real challenging around that last month or so when you're ready to butcher them. You're like, oh my gosh, is it time yet? Please, please let it be time. (laughs) Um, But that's really cool. You guys got a chicken tractor and are kind of transforming that process. Um, I think you said that chickens are the gateway to like homesteading. I've been seeing a lot online lately that chickens are also the gateway to conspiracy theories, um, which I wholeheartedly believe. Um, But that's so interesting. I agree with that statement as well. Yeah, especially after this last winter with the whole feed conspiracy. Um, It was amazing, though, how many people I knew that were feeding their chickens that specific rate of feed and their chickens weren't laying eggs. And then when they switched to the local feed mill, they did start laying eggs. So, I mean, is it a conspiracy if you grab truth it? (laughs) That's the, yeah, all the conspiracy theories are based in truth somewhere, I think. It's just how far the rabbit hole, how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. So um, what's that kind of experience been like, as you've, you mentioned transitioning to some more regenerative practices uh, with your livestock, the pigs, Um, how are you guys utilizing those? Yeah. So um, I've got a friend who raises some heritage breed pigs. Um, He's got the woolly pigs crossed with red wattle and they're really high marbled red meat pigs. And when you think of like a pork chop at the store, that that meat is super lean and white. You know, at one time, the pork industry advertised pork as the other white meat. Uh, um, I think that's a massive insult to a pig. You know, a pig wasn't designed to be a lean animal. And when you look back at all these heritage breeds, there's so much fat and flavor in them that that's what I wanted to get back to. And so we bought some heritage pigs from him. We ended up the first year we did six and I had all, I had five of them sold. And then we were keeping one for ourselves before I even got them. I'm like, I'm going to get pigs and I want enough for us. And then to sell to other people. And I had no idea what I'm going to charge. And I went to a family friends and told them what I was doing and what I was going to get. And we're, we we're going to, you know, have electric fence and try to graze them, which that didn't work out for us. They just stayed in a dirt lot, but we, uh, and they were all on board, you know, like that, that sounds awesome. I showed them pictures of the meat from my, my friend and what his meat looked like. And people are like, I want that. I don't care what it costs. I I'm tired of, you know, boring food at the store. So we did that and that was a, that was a leg in. Um, and then this year we did, we did more of those. And basically we use pigs on our operation as a, as a compost pile. Um, actually we cleared a lot of trees when we bought the place and, you know, everybody says, where do you, where do you make a brush pile and burn? You'll never get anything to grow because it got so hot and sterilized the ground. Well, I put pigs there 
And then after the first year, I threw on a cover crop mix. And the cover crop mix got to six foot tall after the pigs got off of there. And then we put pigs back into there this year. And so if a pig is the, I think the most underutilized resource on a farm, if you think you have a piece of ground that can't grow anything, because a pig is going to absolutely tear it up, you trash it and make it grow. So come again. Why is it so, so many- And this year we, uh, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. We must have a little bit of a delay, but um, it's so funny to think about how underrated, like you said, that pigs and I think livestock in general are as a land management tool. There's so much waste ground um, that comes from conventional farming, whether it's like too steep to farm or it's too close to the creek or there's the waterway and all those kinds of things that you can utilize those livestock to get something out of that ground. And when we've got prices the way we do anymore to get started in farming, it's about that you got to make use of every acre you've got to, to make things work. Yeah. So this year I, you know, going down the rabbit hole of actually back up. So 2020, it really got me and I'm thinking when packing plants and locker plants, you know, shut down for COVID. And you had all these cattle and feedlots that couldn't get moved. And some of them were starting to die because they got so big. Then you had the chicken houses where chickens can't get to the slaughter because, you know, they were open. And, you know, you and I both know what a Cornish cross chicken does after it gets seven weeks old. They, they don't make it. And pigs, pigs were getting so big in slaughterhouses that you know, they weren't making it. And there's hog farmers within 60 miles of us that were selling fat hogs for $30 a pig. And just please go get them because they're going to die. And that got me thinking like, there has got to be a better way. And, you know, this summer it got extremely hot in Northeast Kansas there for four or five days with the heat index was 136, I think was the peak. And there was a feedlot within 60 miles of my house that lost over 700 head in that four day span, which is unimaginable um, and extremely sad for everybody involved in that. And I don't wish that upon anybody, but that gets you thinking like, is, is there a better way, you know, I have, my wife and I run stalker cattle with my parents out in Washington County and our cattle, you know, lived, everybody else's cattle lived, they had shade, they had water. Um, it's, it's just, it's sad. And I think there's gotta be a better way. And I think consumers are starting to think that as well. It definitely has made us question a lot of the systems that we've relied on. They've been evolving for, I don't know, probably since the 50s at least. And we've started to rely on them. And then one of those events like COVID or even just like you said, a couple of days that get a little hotter (laughs) makes you question everything. Um, And I think that kind of ties in to this conversation about self-sufficiency and us wanting to have a little bit more say in how things operate in the food that we feed ourselves. Like you mentioned, having that life insurance health examination was kind of what initially led you guys to that. Um, That kind of ideology of, I think we can do this better ourselves is something that has got a lot of people started on this homesteading journey. which it's so interesting to think about because self-sufficiency is a huge, I would almost say like core value of a lot of farmers. Would you agree? Absolutely, yeah, I agree with that. And 
I think a lot of farmers would like to not rely on the bank or the government, but unfortunately the system and the path we're headed down today, um, we rely too heavily on those practices. Yeah, it's and it's understandable why folks do that. Um, you know, a lot of times if you want to grow past the the size that you are now, there's just not any other option um, with that capital intense requirement for, for growth. Um, so tell me a little bit about kind of what got you questioning the insurance side of things, because I think that plays a big role in one of those in one of those barriers to entry in some of those cases. Yeah. So first, I want to back up on what you were saying there before you asked that question. So I was at a uh, Farm Equipment Manufacturers Association meeting last week in Kansas City, and they had a panel about uh, like emerging technology. And there was a grower on there, a farmer from uh, Lewisburg um, area. He farms 12,000 acres and his family operation is... diving in on region ag. He said they've got cover crops on 95% of their acres. And the thing that he said that stuck out to me the most was he's like, guys, I farm 12,000 acres and I'm exhausted. I don't want to farm 12,000 acres. I want to farm less acres and make more money on those acres than having to farm so much. I want to spend time with my family. I want to see my kids. I don't want to have to work seven days a week. I just, I don't want to be a 12,000 acre farmer. Um, that was so refreshing to hear because in today's society, it's, you know, I think a farmer feels like he's going to go to the grave and on his headstone, it's going to say, well, I farmed 4,000 acres and that's what people are going to remember me by. Um, it's, so it was very rewarding and refreshing to hear somebody of that size and caliber say that they would love to farm less, but it's just the fact that we're on. Yeah, I'm so glad you shared that because I think a lot of times we all feel like we have to push ourselves to grow more, grow more. And that's the way that you measure success is how many acres can you manage as a farmer? But to hear from the flip side of the coin of, well, I wish I could manage less because I'm not benefiting personally from it. That's pretty, pretty interesting to hear. Yeah. It's a law of diminishing, diminishing returns, right? I mean, yeah. Professor Shirley would be happy. <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten about that class. That's funny. <laughs> so, but no, I think, uh, so diving into region ag, um, you know, the government handcuffs a lot of people on cover crops today. So not necessarily uh, using cover crops, but I guess how you use cover crops, um, you know, if a farmer wants to plant rye in the fall and then plant soybeans into that rye the first of April and then wait to terminate the rye until the beans are at a certain stage that you could roller prep the rye, the, the crop insurance doesn't allow you to do that. That is a, a breach in your crop insurance. And if the RMA finds out, which there's an acronym we're talking about, but an RMA is the overreaching power of who controls crop insurance, right? And so, they make all the rules and then they pass those rules down to the crop insurance companies. But if RMA finds out about that, that you did that, well, your, your agent gets slammed and you get slammed. Hopefully you don't go to prison because of it. And you're, you're never going to be able to have crop insurance again if you break all those rules. And not to mention the fine. You know, there's a farmer by Emporia that um, really went down the region road and was doing a lot of cover crops and doing things that I talked about there. And he got... He got caught and 
you know, he was farming quite a few acres. And then after that, he wasn't able to get a loan at the bank because he didn't have crop insurance to um, use his collateral. And so he lost a lot of his acres and now he's only farming like the quarter he lives on. Uh, it's just, it's sad that, you know, the government handcuffs you on what you can do um, when you're trying to better your soils and be more sustainable. You know, guys are trying to figure out ways how to cut input costs and not rely on fertilizer markets that go up and down. And, you know, those markets are dependent on winters and shipping and things like that. But here's a guy that's trying to grow something, make his soil healthy, produce fertilizer, and yet getting slapped on the wrist by the government. Um, it's, it's frustrating. It is. And when we hear about rules like that, I always try to think about it like from a historical perspective, because I think a lot of those rules get passed down and never rewritten or adjusted. So I'm always like, what was it originally that caused this rule to be in the book that we now all have to play by? And, you know, we're forced to color inside the lines, like you said, or potentially go to jail or lose your ground or all these other things that could happen. And it's just like, some of these things don't make any sense. Like, where did they come from? Do you have any perspective on that? You know, there's some of the rules that there's a, like a cover crop termination date. That's all based on like a, a highway line. You know, as you go further West, you've got to terminate your cover crops earlier. And I understand some of those rules, you know, you get into Western Kansas where their average year order rainfall is a third less than the Eastern part of the state. So it makes sense that okay, we don't want these cover crops grown for so long, you know, and robbing moisture from the future crop. But as trends and weather patterns have changed, I feel like all those rules don't quite fit. You know, here in the eastern part of the state, you've got to terminate your cover crop within seven days of your planting date. Well, to do the system I talked about, about where you plant rye and that where you drill rye in the fall and then you plant your soybeans into it, you're not going to terminate your rye for at least another 30 days until those soybeans are at first trifolia. Well, right there, that that doesn't work at all. And that, and the um, crop insurance system. It seems like we're getting to the point where a lot of us are starting to maybe challenge some of the norms around practices that have been in place for a long time. And we're wanting to try these new things out and the programs are just not able to keep up because like we've said, it's at a federal level. We all know that that moves slower than a snail. Um, I, I just, it just makes me wonder if there's anything that we can do from a producer level to try to push some of these programs to become a little bit more modern or to recognize some of these things, or is the answer stepping away from them completely? Where's that line? Do you think? Actually, so <clears throat> I've asked a lot of my peers and old customers, you know, about this topic lately. And I always leave it in with, um, you know, I had this conversation last night at a birthday party with a, with a farmer and I said, unpopular opinion, but I think federal crop insurance makes farmers lazy. And he looked me right in the eye. He says, I agree. And for example, let's say hailstorm comes July 4th, totally wipes out your corn crop. Well, if that farmer had hail insurance, which is a private product, not funded by the government, he'd get a hundred percent payment. But then he's also going to get his crop insurance payment on that corn. And it's going to be the most profitable crop on his farm. He doesn't have to harvest anything and he got paid twice for it off his hail insurance. And then his 
federal crop insurance policy. Well, so he doesn't have to grow anything the rest of the year. He just got a massive payday on that field. If he didn't have crop insurance, that farmer would probably plant, you know, some sort of feed or um, a summer annual or something to make some sort of final product to sell to have income for his family or to feed to his livestock. But no, with federal crop insurance, you don't have to. It's so interesting to hear that perspective. Um, I think I've heard a lot of folks say that opinion exactly, that it creates this thing where we don't have to be innovative or we don't have to try to make our own income because of the insurance. And then on the flip side, I've heard folks say that it is federal security. It's making sure that even if your crop fails, you keep farming next year so that America continues to have food um, that we can all eat. Have you heard that side of it? Yeah, Um, I chuckle there a little bit. So my in-laws are crop insurance agents and have been agents for a long time. And so I make, uh, I make conversation at the holidays. Very interesting when I'm stirring the pot on crop insurance. Um, my wife tells me somebody's got to stir the pot so it doesn't burn. And I, I have full control of the spoon at those holiday dinners, but I've heard that, you know, my father-in-law would he'll tell you today that, you know, crop insurance is designed to help keep food cheap and keep farmers in business this one well, i i totally disagree because for example that farmer whose core crop got hailed out july 4th well there's zero corn say that was a hailstorm all across the u.s well guess what now there's zero corn those farmers got paid guess what's going to happen to the price of corn it's not going to go down so who's paying for it well we as a taxpayer are paying the farmer on the federal crop insurance because it's subsidized by the government and then we're paying for it at the grocery store on final bids. So it didn't make food cheap. The only thing it did was keep farmers farming. But another way to keep farmers farming in that scenario is diversity. You know, today where, where I live, we're stuck in such a corn bean, corn soybean, corn soybean rotation. Hardly any livestock in my county where I live. I'm in Brown County and it, there's no diversity. We just raise all these monocrops and we hope for the best. Um, I think my biggest pet peeve since I got out of college is the is the saying, well, this is the way we've always done it. And that drives me nuts. Every time somebody says that, I'm, I'm smacking them in the face in my mind and <laughs> closing my eyes. Because, you know, and they're not discounting how we got here. You know, our grandparents and parents, yeah, it worked for them and that's great. And I, I don't think we need to discount that at all, but it, yes, it has worked, but is there a way to tweak it? Is there a way to make that better? And I think that's what we're trying to do now. Mm-hmm. And I think when we have that kind of incentive to keep doing what we've always do, been doing because there hasn't been a change in those programs, um, it becomes something that you can depend on that you know the answer to. And there's so much risk in agriculture that it's nice to have some of those things that you're like, well, I know I'm going to get a crop insurance payment. Um, I know it's going to be there for me. So it does, I think, provide some of that protection, but it's also like, is it, like you said, the right protection? Is there other ways that we could be incentivizing innovation 
and trying new practices in ag while still giving farmers the security of, okay, if you try something new and it fails, you're going to still be able to keep farming like you mentioned. Yeah. I think, uh, and one thing that I've been asking or has been a topic with a lot of my peers and had a mentor reach out to me like my first internship in college and we were talking about this and he's he's a decent sized farmer has 250 mama cows and farms you know a thousand fifteen hundred acres and we were talking about food system and crop insurance and things and i i asked him i said i I don't want to offend you by this but you know what do you grow that i eat you know corn soybeans i i don't see that on my table yeah the corn's going to feed chickens and my chicken feed and things like that but you know i i love the sign that says one kansas farmer feeds 155 people plus you well i understand the wheat farmers but i struggle with the corn farmers and the bean farmers feeding me you know and i saw this on uh facebook texas farm bureau posted this picture and i think they're proud of it not I'm, I'm guessing they're proud of it if they shared it, but they said one bushel of corn equals 38 boxes of cereal, 258 six packs of soda, 33 pounds of sweetener, 2.8 gallons of ethanol, 17 and a half pounds of dried distiller grains. And we wonder why Americans are unhealthy today. <laughs> the first thing on there, 38 boxes of cereal and 258 six packs of soda. I think we could have led with one bushel of corn produced is five chickens or x amount of beef or this many pounds of pork but no we went to immediately to the processed foods oh man oh social media it's i that you hit a hot button topic for me there i'm actually going to be presenting at the women managing the farm conference next year and we're talking about exactly that about how the statistics that you use when you advocate for agriculture matter so much because just like that you post something like that and you know a lot of farmers will be like ah, just like your reaction was maybe could have led with something else but you have the knowledge to know what else is behind the story there a consumer who sees that does not and they immediately go to farmers are trying to poison me with this cereal that's full of sugar that i'm eating in this pop so it's yeah that's such a hot Hot button topic. Um, well, back to your sorry to throw oh. our Texas Farm Bureau under the bus. <laughs> we we gotta love them. They're doing their best. It's probably uh, some intern, college intern that put that together. So I'm sure they're they're learning on on the job there. But um, yeah, I, I've got a buddy that always shared. Well, I'm a farmer. I feed the world, and I'm always like, man, what do you grow that I eat? So that's a really that's good point too. Yeah. Um, Uh, This is a conversation I've been having because I work with specialty crop farmers in Kansas. I went and my degree in college was horticulture, fruit and vegetable production. Not super common in Kansas, but it is growing. And the insurance aspect of what that looks like for them is totally different than regular crop insurance. They are not considered commodity crops and they are the ones who are putting food grown in Kansas that actually goes straight to your plate. You know, those are the apples, those are the vegetables, the peaches, the strawberries, the onions, things like that, that you actually consume right away. Um, They had a late, or I think an early freeze um, in Northeast Kansas last year. And that killed off a lot of the fruit crops. There were farmers um, who, you know, normally would expect $200,000, $300,000 on their harvest. 
doing these high value fruit and vegetable crops and it was completely wiped out. And there is not that option for insurance for them. Um, and they joke, they were telling me, I saw one of them a couple of weeks ago and they were telling me, you know, they had to harvest because they would not be able to prove that the crop was there, I guess, for their, however their insurance works, they do have to actually harvest to prove that they did do that. Um, and he like went out and picked five peaches and said, okay, I harvested. <laughs> that was, that was my harvest. And, um, and you know, from that 200, $300,000 payment that he was expecting from producing that crop, if it had gone to market instead, he got $16,000 in his insurance payment makes it yeah. pretty hard to stomach. Very herbicide. Um, that kind of, brought me to a topic that I've asked um, my father-in-law to the insurance agent. You know, what was the demise of the 40-acre the homestead? You know, what was it crop insurance or what was the demise of the 80-acre homestead? You know, where everybody had a milk cow and chickens and pigs and very self-sufficient and, and everybody canned and had a root cellar. What was the demise of that? <laughs> was it crop insurance where a you know, guys could get big quick and have hardly any risk involved in it. Or was it, was it labor? Um, you know, people not wanting to work that hard or live that lifestyle. I think a big part of it was the grocery stores. When the grocery stores came out, I think that was a huge um, turning point in the small homestead farms. Um, but I think we're definitely seeing a shift in our generation of wanting and longing for that back, I think. I think you're definitely right. Um, for one, prices of food in the grocery store has made a lot of people see how they can make that food budget go a little farther, see what they can grow or produce themselves. And then just the question of that long list of ingredients and even the most simple products that you buy um, and seeing how you can maybe reduce some of those things at home. And it, I struggle with that a little bit because I try to look at it from like a chemistry standpoint of, yes, I may not understand what this long name is on the package, but it may be something very simple. They're just, this is how their labeling regulations work. But even so, even trying to approach it from that perspective, you still have to, I think, question some of the things, the additives, the preservatives that are being put in our food. Yeah, it was uh, last Thursday night, I was sitting there making homemade fruit snacks for my two and a half year old daughter. And I'm like, never on a Thursday night that I had to imagine myself making homemade fruit snacks. <laughs> I, what have we gone? I am trying but, to imagine um, the college Shane leaning over in Aggie con to tell me that he's making homemade fruit snacks. And I can't, I can't quite picture it, but that's pretty funny. There probably would have been a glass bottle next to the fruit if I were them in college. <laughs> Oh gosh. But even, um, you know, when you talked about prices at the grocery store, we, uh, this last year, you know, we, Emily and I have had a big push of sourcing local food and buying local food and spending less money at Walmart. And you've got four kids, you know how much milk is and how much milk you can go through. Well, I'd say that's one thing where we're actually spending more money on because we are sourcing milk from a, a lady that's got a Jersey cow and it's A2A2. So it's very digestible. Um, Emily isn't lactose intolerant, but struggles with some lactose things. And so we, you know, we buy raw milk and everything's fine. My daughter, we actually had a, I quartered two cups 
because the cow just had her calf and we're getting milk again. And so pork two cups, one from the store and one from uh, the raw milk and had her drink him and she get, handed me back the store milk. I'm like, yep, that's awesome. It's <laughs> so funny. That's another thing that's kind sad is, you know, there's a, there's a dairy seven miles away from us that milks, you know, 50, 60 cows and we can't go buy milk from them. That is illegal for them to sell us milk. Yeah. Um, Unfortunate. It is. We've talked a little bit on the podcast before. We haven't dove into it real deep, but how the federal regulations that are enforced on local producers and processors that you you are really separated in a lot of ways, and especially on specific products like milk. Um, eggs is also one of them. Meat um, can be, depending on how you have it butchered. Um, that you can't just go sell it to your neighbor. Um, And I think that that is a really interesting direction that we took as a country when we decided that everybody, everybody who's producing has to follow these rules. Yeah. Um, I think that goes back to uh, lobbyist dollars and federal policy. Yeah. 100%. But I think there's some, you know, would I rather go pull a jar of milk out of the bottom of the tank from 50 cows or would I rather go get my one jar for one cow and pay $4.50 for half a gallon? I'm going to buy it from the one cow because I know what it is. And I don't know, you know, I don't really want a jar from 50 cows. I want it from one cow, but that's just my personal preference. Well, and the... I've, we've been doing some research into dairy because I really want to get a milk cow. I've been saying this for like several years now and we haven't done it yet because we moved and we have to get the barn ready, but it's still on the list. But the differences in the milk product when it is unpasteurized and non-homogenated is vastly different. And then you can even get into the A2A2 um, debacle there. Like there is so much education that I had no idea about. And I drank milk my whole life. Um, had no idea that it was so nuanced to take this like pretty nutritional beverage. Um, even store-bought, you know, it's definitely better than your soda. Absolutely. <laughs> and just see what how different it is than like you said, if you're getting the raw product. Yeah. Um, I'm going to make some people spell on their head. But when Emily was pregnant with her second child, I mean, she drank raw milk every day. And, you know, it's it's an inherent risk. We know it as a possibility. But if you look at the statistics of the chances of actually getting something, and as long as you know you're getting milk from somebody's, you know, clean and, you know, they're up there, you know, sanitizing things, it, yeah, there's no worry, really. Yes, there's risk, but there's inherent risk with everything. I mean, look how many recalls there is at the store on salmonella and lettuce and things like that. So I think that is one place that we also have a lot of room to grow regulation wise is looking at the scale of some of these producers and saying, you know, these same principles or rules should not apply to them because they're, they're operation is completely different than the dairy that's milking, you know, 300, 400 head every day. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another thing, you know, in, in, uh, 2020 when dairy farmers were just dumping truckloads of milk, it was, it was sad. Yep. And a lot of people didn't understand that. 
but it's like, well, you know, a lot of that milk probably doesn't need to be pasteurized before it's is probably safe to drink after, you know, when you mix in a big tank down But it's just sad. I wish there was a better way. Yeah. I'm so glad you could join us today. You can support the mission of the Farming on Purpose podcast and be part of the tribe dedicated to building ag legacies at farmingonpurpose.com slash shop. You'll find apparel, office supplies, stickers, planners, and more, all inspired by the people living out ag legacies every day. We haven't talked much, or we didn't really talk about this beforehand, but insurance is not something that is as commonly seen on the livestock side of things. Um, Some of those big operations have some kind of insurance, but livestock insurance specifically is so much less commonly used in the U.S. It's not, um, you know, federally, what do you call that, reimbursed or... Uh, subsidized yeah subsidized thank you (laughs) um so actually go ahead go i was just gonna say what do you think are the differences there how did we get to this point well it is getting more common now because it is getting federally subsidized now so i mentioned um two years ago um unfortunately my my grandpa passed away two years ago so then my mom inherited a farm and so we we rent some pasture from my mom and then rent some pasture from my uncle but we and with my in-laws being crop insurance agents, I'm always up to date on this stuff. And so we actually take out an LRP contract on our stalker cattle. So, you know, the day you buy them, the day you take ownership of them, you can lock in a so many week contract that basically ensures, okay, if the price falls below this, we're going to pay you the difference. And heck yeah, why wouldn't I take subsidized dollars to help protect myself? You know, yeah, I just sit here and criticize crop insurance, but it makes people lazy. But at the same time, if people are handing out free money, why aren't you going to take free money? <laughs> so, and the other side, we took out a pasture range and forage policy, which is basically a rainfall protection on your um, grassland acres. This year, right now, I'll well, back up last year, my pasture, the most annual rainfall that they've had in the last 10 years. And we, I think, doubled our premium and revenue from our PRF policy. And this year it's been like the driest year. uh, There's some old timer around there that say this is the driest year they've ever seen. And some places around our pasture have only got six inches of rain this year. So and we're we're close to my brother-in-law, my insurance agent was telling me this weekend that we're $100 shy of quadrupling our money of our premium on that. Guess what? That's federally subsidized. Guess who's paying for it? So it's getting it's getting a lot more popular. And we actually had this discussion of he wonders how long the government's actually going to continue to subsidize PRF because it is it does pay out so much money every year. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts. Definitely. And if that does stop, what that will look like when insurance companies come in to try to maybe fill in some of the gaps there. Yeah. Be interesting to see what private products come out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd be curious to see how much insurance would be, you know, multi-parallel crop insurance policy, what that would be if the government wasn't involved at all. If it was just a private insurance product, like your home insurance or your car insurance, how much more money would it be? And at what risk level would people insure their stuff at then? Right. That's you know, a good question. Do you be 
ensuring their crops at 85% coverage if the government's subsidizing this much, or if you have to pay it all out of your own pocket, how much would the premium be? That's a really good question. I think that would be really neat to see how it would unfold economically. Um, Well, I think, man, we covered a lot of ground (laughs) so far. Um, Since you do have some experience kind of looking at the numbers and understanding how the crop insurance and the livestock insurance is working, if somebody was looking at getting their livestock insured or um, maybe questioning some of the crop insurance policies that they have, what kind of questions do you think that they should be asking? What kind of questions did you ask your insurance agent? That's a tough question. Um, first, I would find an insurance agent that you could trust and somebody that's very knowledgeable and has experience writing these types of products. Um, insurance companies out there today, besides the multi-parallel, which is a federal aid subsidized, there's a lot of private products out there offered by different insurance companies that do help bridge the gap on some of the income levels. Um, but I would just say find, you know, find an agent you can trust and know the ins and the outs of the policy of how it works and run the numbers, um, you know, run all the scenarios and make your insurance agent do it with you. That way he under, he or she understands how the policy works as well. Yeah, that's uh, and not only, you know, going back to federally subsidized crop insurance, but it, it's the government payments as well that get handed out to farmers. That is kind of the uh, the thing nobody talks about as well. I mean, there's a lot of dollars. Now, in 2020, you know, every farmer, if they'd been a farmer for so long, they could sign up for the PPP loan and get $20,800, right? Mm-hmm. What that money go towards? Well, I, I sit on both sides of the fence of that. You know, did I want a bunch of money handed out? No. Um, but did it fuel the economy? Yes. Because what do people do when there's cash sitting in their pocket? It burns a hole right through the pocket and they got to spend it. And so the, the money did trickle down and, and fund communities and keep the economy going in a, in a really stressful time. So I don't downgrade the PPP loans by any means, but, but did I want that much money being handed out? No. And if you're curious, anybody can Google any business or any farm name and just type in so-and-so PPP loan and it'll pull it up on the internet. You can see what everybody got. It's it's public information. That's uncomfortable to think about. <laughs> well, I guess as a taxpayer, it's nice to know how much you paid people, right? <laughs> true, true. I think the thing I get into with that, you said um, something that stuck with me, burning a hole in their pocket when they get that payment, which I'm like, yeah, probably for most of us. I think a little bit, we were, a lot of folks who got that were nervous because they didn't know if they'd have to pay it back or not um, and what that would look like. But also I always, I'm like, well, if you have money in the account, you probably need to be managing what level you're letting that account sit at because your dollar is decreasing in value most days. <laughs> so absolutely looking at what kind of assets you can buy with that money versus what your cash is worth is really important to remember too. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to go look at the farm income charts um from 19 to 20, 21, 22. Uh, this year will be significantly down from the last three, but it is very interesting to see those spikes 
Uh, I know in 50 years, when people are in ag come class, they're going to be looking at that chart and saying, wow, what, what happened here? <laughs> yeah. It's so much has changed um, because of 2020 that I don't know if anything will ever go back 100% to the way it was, which it probably shouldn't. I was thinking um, when we talk about insurance and those PPP loans that were available, a lot of us maybe cringe at the thought of taking stuff like that or signing up for stuff like that because it contributes to the things that we don't believe in. Um, But I think we're all forced to operate in the reality that we currently exist in and using the resources that are available to us. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts on how we continue to do business the best that we can with the way that the system is now, while also being aspirational to what we hope the system continues to progress towards. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I want to say by no means do I discount anybody that took a PPP loan. Um, I don't want to discredit um, those people at all. Farming today is so competitive. And if your neighbor's going to take money that's free and out there to help him buy the next farm or next tracker to make him more efficient, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, so that really puts us in a, a cyclical place. Man, to answer your question, I think it's five years, I think I'd have a better answer. I think is this region ag and people are starting to, you know, consumers are starting to shift, you know, wanting healthier food. And I think... I think we're past the organic stage, you know, when, when organic was a thing, it was a buzzword and everybody wanted clean or food. Well, farm kids like you and I were like, eh, we don't buy into that whole thing. But now we're on the other side of the fence. Like, wait, we, we want healthier food. We want more nutrient dense food for our kids and we don't want our kids to eat all this junk. So we're shifting that way. And I think a lot of farmers are shifting that way. Um, I heard a guy say one time that he wouldn't use any practice on his farm or do anything to any of his crops or livestock that he wouldn't feed he does on kids. And I think that's a good rule to live by is don't do anything that you would eat yourself. And I think a lot of farmers are that way today, but um, it's just a good reminder to, uh, you know, be a good steward and do what's best and not always, or do what's right and not always best, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a complex system when we look at it, like that was the perfect answer is hopefully we have better answers in five years because there are so many things that affect it. It's not just the economy. It's not just mother nature. It's not just consumer preference. It's like all of these things that come together that we're trying to make sure that we do have a good food supply that is nutrient dense and affordable and people want to eat it. And Figuring that out is no easy task when you're looking to make some shifts in how things work now to where closer to where we want to see them be. But keeping to choose, keep choosing the right next, next right thing. Wow. Butchered that. Keep choosing the next right thing is the best you can do. That's what I forget who said it, but I can't take credit for this, but somebody was talking about our food system. Like food is insanely cheap, abundantly wasteful and boringly consistent. And when you look at, you know, nutrient density of foods today versus 50, 70 years ago, at a minimum, foods are 20% less nutrient dense than they were 50 years ago. And when we talk about feeding the world and have to feed all these people, well, right there, 
we could make up 20% if we, or you could eat 20% less if we had the same nutrient values that it did 50 years ago. Mm. And how do we get to this point? So that's a good question. And food waste plays into that in a huge way as well with 30, is it 33%? I think that's the last number I saw is that food is wasted every day. I believe it. I mean, I've been, I'm ashamed of the amount of food waste in my own household. Um, I'm very blessed to have chickens and pigs that eat that food waste, <laughs> but I, I'm very disappointed in how much food we throw out at the end of the week. It's for how many bags of spinach die in the back of the refrigerator. So it's definitely had a struggling to create systems to not let that stuff go to waste. It's hard, but chickens and pigs definitely help. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, Shane, I just want to thank you so much for being here today and sharing your perspective. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, as always, diving clear from A2, A2 milk to crop insurance and everything in between. I think um, there's something that you can take from this conversation and apply it to your operation. So thanks again for sharing your perspective with the listeners. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Lexi. Um, Enjoyed the time and it was good to catch up. If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or join the conversation on social media. Do you have a topic you would like to discuss or know someone with a story to share? Apply to be a guest on the podcast at farmingonpurpose.com. You can follow the host of Farming on Purpose, Lexi, on your favorite social media platforms for more content by searching for Farming on Purpose. And remember, if you look around your table and aren't inspired by the people there, it's time to find a new seat.